0: Well, good morning, everyone. uh, As I promised, this morning we're going to begin a short series uh, looking at the history of Israel. And this is my way of trying to share a little bit of what we experienced this summer when we took a trip to Israel. Uh, But to do it in a way, hopefully, that's uh, meaningful to you. Uh, So to kind of get started, let me introduce you to the group who went on this trip. This is our group from this summer. You may recognize some of those folks in the picture, Larry and... Mary Farley, you'll see Gary and Kathy Morris. Uh, It was great to be a part of a trip with Gary, one of our missionaries, and to hear him teach as we went to different places along the way. Uh, To our surprise, his son Raleigh and his wife Jessie were there. We didn't know they were going to be there until we showed up, and there they were having dinner with us. And we thought, man, this is awesome. They added a great dynamic uh, to our trip. Um, Then, of course, Terry and I and and our sister-in-law Dawn, uh, Doug and Kimberly Kennedy, We're a part of this group. And then a friend of mine from Colorado Springs, actually a best man in my wedding and still one of my very closest friends, Greg Storm and his wife, Jolie. Um, And then some of you know Dick and Nita Lowry, their son, Brent, uh, and his wife, Petey, were on this trip with a friend of theirs from Cornerstone. Uh, Her name was Susan. The rest of the people in the picture are folks who were um, a part of Gary's church or somehow associated with his ministry there in Atlanta. So it was a great group, probably 23, 25 people, which was awesome because it allowed us to go to a lot of different places and not have to worry about traveling with a mass of 100 to 200 people, which is normally what the tour groups are when you go to Israel. Uh, But we had a smaller group, so we were able to spend a little more time, go to a few more places, and it was a a wonderful experience. So my hope is that I get to share some of that with you as we walk through this together. And, And the, the hope and prayer that I've had as I've prepared through this is that, that you would find a connection with what we're talking about. That as you look and, and, and learn as we go through together the history of Israel, you'll see a direct connection to you. And specifically, what I'm talking about here is that faithful love that God has towards His chosen people Israel is the same faithful love that He has towards you. That same Promise promise that, that God made through Israel and to Israel has a direct impact on you. And ultimately, the Messiah who came from Israel came for you. And so hopefully, as we walk through this together, you see and understand and have a broader, deeper perspective of that connection we have with God's people, Israel. And so let me give you the big picture of how we're going to do this. I'm going to do a series of three lessons this morning. It's going to be Israel past. Then we're going to look at how God called and formed the nation of Israel and what he called them to do. What was their purpose as a people? Next week, we'll talk about uh, Israel present. We'll go back to the time of Christ up until where we are today to see how God fulfilled that promise to his people, Israel, and how it was rejected. And then the third week, we'll look at Israel's future, how God doesn't forsake His people even though they forsook Him, but instead He redeems them and brings them into the eternal reign of Christ. And so that's kind of where we'll be heading over the next three weeks, and I'm prayerful that it'll be a blessing to you, as I know it has been to me just in thinking through it. So let's begin our time by going to the Lord together. Father, as we embark upon this journey to look at what Your Scripture says about The people, the nation of Israel, that we wouldn't be disconnected from that story, that we would see it as ours, that we have been grafted into that people. And by faith, we are your people, that family, to as many as believe in Christ. To them, you have given the right to become children of God. This is our story. So help us maintain that connection as we look at this people and their story in your word. That's our desire and our hope. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, here's how we're going to do it this morning. I'm kind of excited about this because by the time we're done today, you will have walked through a survey of the Old Testament together. And hopefully by the time you're done, you'll have maybe a better perspective of that Old Testament story than you ever have. Now, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to talk about four people, three societies, and a period of silence. If you can get your hands on these four people, these three societies, in this period of silence, you really have a good understanding of what that Old Testament story is all about. It's kind of a 30,000-foot view of the Old Testament. But it'll really help you understand how God called the people of Israel, formed them, and then gave them a purpose. So we're going to learn this together. This is going to be interactive as we go through it together. So we're going to say it together. We're going to talk about what? Four people, three societies, and a period of silence, okay? So let me start with the four people. You have it in your outline. If you want to write them down, uh, you can. I'll give them all four to you, and then we'll walk through them individually. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, okay? So if you're trying to memorize them, and I hope you are, A-J-M-J, all right? Abraham, Joseph. Moses and Joshua. All right, let's start with Abraham. What we know about Abraham is he was from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Now, there's some debate on where this city was. Some think that it was uh, down here towards Babylon. That's Babylon. Some believe Ur was located down here. Some think it was farther to the north. It really doesn't matter where it was. What's most important is what kind of city was it. And what we know about this city is that it was a city of pagan worship. It was a place where those who lived in this place involved themselves in the worship of false gods, including Abraham's family. We know that because of what Joshua says in chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham the father of Nahor and they served other gods now the reason I bring that up and the reason I believe that's important is because we need to understand that although Abraham is a central figure in the people of Israel there was nothing about him that set him apart as super spiritual there was nothing that he did to merit God's favor God's choice of him was an act of grace because Abraham was like everybody else during that day But God, in his love and grace, selected him to be a very special person. And we'll talk about what that looks like. But for our sake this morning, I want you to understand, he was an ordinary man. The reason I know that is because I met him. This is Abraham. (laughs) While we were in Israel, we went to Abraham's tent. Now, I didn't realize it, but Abraham's from Australia. (laughs) He had an Australian accent, but... uh, This was one of the places that we went and were greeted by Abraham and he invited us in, actually served us a meal. We had dinner there with Abraham and his family and uh, had a great experience as he told a little bit of his story. Uh, So kind that he actually gave us camels that we got to travel on to Abraham's tent. So it was really a pretty fun uh, experience. But let me tell you why Abraham is so important. There was a promise that God made to Abraham. That, in my mind, is the most important promise the world has ever known. I want us to look at that together. You'll find it in Genesis chapter 12. This is what God says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a very important promise. And there were three main things that he mentions in that promise. A land, a seed, and a blessing. He tells him that there will be a specific piece of land that they will reside in as a people of God, and within that land they will become a great nation, and from that nation will come a descendant, and that descendant will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, if you read on in Genesis chapter 15, you're going to come across Abraham and his humanness before God because he's received this promise and he's been brought out of this land that was normal to him and 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 God's called him to something very different. And he asked God a very important question. He says, how will I know that this is true? How do I know that this is going to happen? Well, if you'll read that account, chapter 15, God tells him to go get certain animals. And when you look at that passage, you'll find that God doesn't tell him what to do with those animals. But Abraham knew. He took them, sacrificed them, split them apart. One on one side, one on the other, so that there was an aisle in between. Now, you and I read that and go, what in the world is going on? But to them, it was a very normal practice. For us today, we do the same thing when we sign our name. So when two people get married, there is a marriage license. And it's a covenant commitment. And the way that they uh, indicate their agreement and commitment to that covenant is they sign their names. You have a covenant when you buy a house or or when you buy a car, you sign your name. Now, in ancient times, they would have looked at that and said, that is way too small. Because what they would do is they would have this sacrifice and these things would be split apart. There would be this aisle in between. And typically what would happen is the two parties in the covenant agreement would walk through it together. And what they're saying by this visual act is, may what's happened to these animals? happen to me if I break this covenant. That's how significant it was. But here's something interesting. In this covenant ceremony between Abraham and God, only God walked through. Abraham did not. God walked through, in a sense, saying, this is unilateral, unconditional, it's all on me. In one sense, he's saying, may it happen to me that has happened to these animals if I break my promise, but it's more than that. He's saying, may it happen to me as has happened to these animals if you break that promise. Now, don't forget that, because it's an important part of the story that ultimately impacts us. So it began with Abraham, the father of a great nation. Now, when he comes and travels into the land of Israel, he goes uh, a certain way. One of the things that you need to understand about travel during ancient times is there was not a, um, an infrastructure of all these super highways, right, where you got your nav system or your GPS to decide which is the best route. Everybody traveled the same basic route because you're all traveling on foot, okay? So everybody traveled the same roads. And because of the fact that we know some of the places where Abraham went, we know what route he took. And one of the things that we, I want to point out here, to the north here is a city called Dan. In modern Israel today, Dan is one of the northernmost cities. We went to Dan. And while you're standing in Dan, you can look to the north, and there's Lebanon. You can see it. You can look kind of to the northeast, and there's Syria. You can see it. It's right there next to the border. So while we were in Dan, we were able to see some of the things that, that uh, were a part of this city. This was a beautiful river. What's amazing about this river is that's all spring water. All that water comes from one spring. There was a sign there, I can't really read it, 240 million cubic meters per year. It is the biggest, most active spring in the Middle East. It makes Dan like a little vegetation paradise. It's beautiful, beautiful place. The other thing that's true about Dan, which was true of most ancient cities during that time, is that because everybody walked the same route, when you came up to a city, it had a city gate, an entrance into that city. This is kind of a model that shows what one of those gates might look like. Here's something that's amazing. They have uncovered a city gate made of mud bricks that dates back to the time of Abraham. Very likely, the city gate into this ancient city of Dan, and very possibly, A gate that Abraham and his family would have walked through. And that's the gate. So Abraham has entered into the promised land. But there's a problem because there's still no descendants. He's supposed to be the father of a great nation, but the issue is he doesn't have any kids. But not because he didn't want to. He and, and his wife Sarah wanted to have a family, but she could not bear a child. But God was faithful. He made a promise. And even when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, that promise was fulfilled and they had a son. His name was Isaac. He would be the one through whom that promise of this great nation would ultimately come through. Isaac would have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name would be changed to Israel. He would have 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. But it all hinged on Isaac. He's the key. He's the only one in which this promise can pass through because he's an only son. Which helps us understand why Abraham would have been somewhat confused when God gave him instructions to sacrifice this one, this only son. We get a glimpse of that faith that Abraham had as he grew in his trust in the Lord. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was convinced that he could obey that commandment of God to sacrifice his son because he knew that God would be faithful to his promise. And so he reasoned that if he sacrificed his son, God would raise his son from the dead in order to be faithful to the promise that he had made. And so he was willing to to go through this act as God has instructed. So he takes his son. And he goes to the top of what is called Mount Moriah. And on the top of Mount Moriah, with sun bound, he was ready to make that sacrifice. And God intervenes and provides a ram instead. A sacrifice that he provides instead of Isaac sacrificing his son. Mount Moriah is what we know today as the Temple Mount. That's Mount Moriah. It's also the place where the temple will be built. By Solomon in his day. Apparently there was an, uh, a rock outcropping at the, this particular place. And, and so when Solomon built his temple and he built the Holy of Holies, it was around this place that was believed to be the place where Abraham bound his son for the sacrifice. It would be the place where the Holy of Holies would be built. So you can see from the very beginning, God had appointed this particular place as an important place. In Jerusalem, the holy city. So, we have Abraham. It all begins with him. He's a father of a great nation, Israel. From Abraham came Isaac. From Isaac came Jacob, who was known as Israel, who had 12 sons. And of those 12 sons, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. But before that, there was another problem. <laughs> because one of those 12 sons was sold into slavery by his brothers. Who was that? Joseph. Excellent. So Abraham and then Joseph. Now Joseph has an important part to play because his family is put in jeopardy. There is a famine that has now swept through the land and it literally threatens to wipe out all the people who are in that land of Canaan, including the family of Israel. Except for the fact that while they were suffering, God had taken Joseph through a process and to a place where he was now Uh, in the Egyptian empire, in a great place of influence. So much so that it was Joseph, the one they had rejected, who became the one who rescued them. He says in Genesis chapter 50, as he speaks to his brothers and realizing what had occurred, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to preserve, or in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. You see, Israel threatened to be wiped out. God divinely ordained Joseph to be in a place to rescue. The one rejected became the one who rescued. And they thrived in this place that he provided them, a a place in Egypt to have land, a, a place to have food and protection under that rule of that empire that he was now a big part of. And they did. They, they prospered here. In fact, if you look at Israel's history, this is really when they populated to be that nation that God promised that they would one day be. They became very uh, large in number. In fact, so much so that the people that they were a part of, the Egyptians, became threatened by their size. It says in, uh, in uh, let's see, I'll give you the verse here. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, which we'll see here in a little bit. This is what it tells us. Joseph died. And all his brothers in that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. And became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply and in the event of war. They will also join themselves with those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them, afflicted them with hard labor. The nation of Israel grew to be a great nation, so much so that they were a threat to the Egyptian people. And so to address that threat, they enslaved them. They put them under hard labor to to work for them, to, to build that empire. All the while, they grew to be this great people, but again, the the promise is put in jeopardy, because even though they were a great nation, they were held captive in a country that was not their own, so how can they fulfill the promise to be in the land when they are slaves in Egypt? Well, this is where the next person comes in, Moses, Abraham, Joseph, Moses. Here's another milestone where we see Moses coming on the scene. We all know about Moses, right? He he was the one who did these miracles. We saw the plagues and then the crossing of the Red Sea where the water split apart. The the people of Israel came through. The the Egyptians after them uh, went into that same place. The waters covered them. And God miraculously rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. And we know that story and it's important to understand that. But there's also more to it. Because Moses is the one who gave them the law. And the law was the instructions of of how they were to conduct themselves as a people of God. He also instituted the the sacrificial system so that the nation of Israel would would practice a way in which they understood what it meant to come humbly before a gracious and forgiving God. In a sense, Moses had a key role in establishing the identity of Israel. They had populated to the place where they were a nation, but what was their purpose? Moses gave that to them. Let's look at what it says in Exodus chapter 19. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the people's. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were a, a people with a purpose now, an identity as God's people, and how they were conduct themselves, set apart from the world around them. And so much so, as Isaiah would later write, I will also make you a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God had called his people. Formed them into a nation. Giving them a land. And giving them purpose. And that purpose was to be a light to the nations around them. So that the salvation that they'd experienced through that relationship with him would be extended to all the world. Moses played a key role in all those events. But now we have another problem. They're still not in the land. And Joshua is the one who will take them into the land. Abraham, Moses, or Joseph, Moses, Joshua. What's interesting about Joshua is he would go into the land. You remember Joshua was one of the spies, right, who looked at the land and, and they said, it's a land filled with milk and honey, right? Well, the milk was from the goats that lived in the mountains, The honey was actually from date trees. That there on the left is a date tree. looks like a palm tree, doesn't it? And those things hanging down are bunches of dates. And and so the honey was date honey. The intent was to describe the fruitfulness of the land that had milk from goats in the mountains and and honey from dates in the valley. Even in the desert, you'd see these palm trees filled with dates. So this is the land of of milk and, and honey. And so he would go on to take his people into the land that God had promised them. They would cross the Jordan to a, on a place just north of the Dead Sea. It's right across from Mount Nebo, and it's located right here. Today it's known as Bethany beyond the Jordan. What's interesting about this place is that historically they believe that the place that the Israelites first came into the land of Canaan, as they crossed the Jordan, was the exact same place that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And, and I don't know what the significance is there necessarily, but when I think about that, what comes to my mind is Israel was going into the land of promise. Jesus is showing the way to eternal life, the land of promise that lasts for all eternity. But they crossed there at that same place. They went into Jericho, was the first place that they went, just on the other side uh, of the Jordan. Just to kind of give you a picture, this is what the Jordan looks like today. Like most of the water in Israel, it's drying up. Uh, In fact, they can no longer afford to take uh, water out of the Sea of Galilee, which is how they usually got water, uh, because it's shrinking. And so now they're uh, desalinating water out of the Mediterranean Sea for their drinking water. Uh, And they have a process in which they can do that. But the Jordan River Uh, is drying up, and that's what it looks like today. Up a little higher on the Jordan, it looks nicer. (laughs) Nice kind of emerald green color. I took this picture with my phone, and that little ray of light came down. Isn't that cool? But this is where people get baptized, and there were several from our group who uh, I had the privilege to baptize in the Jordan River. So this was a really special place. And so here's where we are in the story of God's people. We have Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua. And up to this point, we've seen how God called by grace the, uh, Abraham to uh, be the father of a great nation and how that nation was formed under the protection of Joseph as they populated become this great nation and then led by Moses out from their Egyptian slavery and then by Joshua into the land of promise. And so now we enter into the next phase of their existence, those three societies. You ready? Here they are. Anarchy, royalty, captivity. All right, we're going to say it together because I want you to remember them. Ready? Anarchy, royalty, captivity. Those are the next three societies that depict the story of Israel's history. The fact is, the people of God are in the promised land. Everything's great. And then they get lazy. And there's anarchy because we know the scripture tells us that In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's anarchy. There's nobody in control. Everybody's doing whatever they feel like doing, and it's chaos. And so over the next 350 years, God sends 13 judges. And these judges really had one primary role. They consistently and repeatedly called the nation of Israel to repentance. To be the people that that God had called them to be and, and designed them to be. One, right after the other, they called them to repentance. But this was a season of great compromise. Instead of being that people that God had designed them to be, set apart from all the nations to be a light, to bring salvation to all the nations, they became like every other nation. They intermarried, they intermingled, and pretty soon they looked like everybody else. So much so that they wanted a king. Why? Because everybody else had one. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And listen to what they said to him. Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us. Why? Like all the other nations. Well, this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They wanted to be like all the other nations and have a king. And so God, in a sense, let them have their way. And there were three primary kings that began this period of royalty. So now we've moved from anarchy into royalty and those three kings are Saul, David and Solomon. Saul, David and Solomon. Now Saul was the first king. He was chosen by the people, and the scripture is very clear how they chose him. He was tall, he was handsome. That's what it says. That's the re- Everything about him looked like a leader, like a king, at least from the outside. But what they didn't understand is that on the inside, he was a man of great compromise. He wanted to look good in the eyes of people. And so he often uh, betrayed his own convictions in order to please other people. And he failed as a king. God instead would choose the next king. We know that to be David. And his method was different. Look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, that's how Saul was chosen. Instead, what does he say? Because I have rejected him, for God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what he looked at David, the Scripture tells us that he saw a man after God's own heart. Now, does that mean he was perfect? Absolutely not. But here's what it does mean. When David failed, he consistently and repeatedly confessed and repented before the Lord. Saul, when he failed, he made excuses. Here's why. Saul wanted to look good in the eyes of men. David was most concerned of being right in the eyes of God. And so even when he failed, he was humble, seeking repentance before the God who could save him. And that was the heart of a man who was uh, a servant of God. So that's David. And what we know about David is before he became king, Saul wanted to kill him. You remember that? He chased him around and wanted to kill him. And one of the places that he went was a place called En Gedi. En Gedi is in the desert. What's amazing about this place is if I showed you a picture, and I should have, of that desert area, it is barren. It's like nothing but sand. You can't see a green thing around you. And out of nowhere is this series of waterfalls, and that water comes from a cave. If you'll look at the scripture, the cave that David hid in was a cave where a spring of water came flowing out. And so they feel pretty certain that the cave there in En Gedi, where it says David was, was the very cave that David was hiding in. The day when Saul went up to relieve himself, not knowing that David was in that cave and David cut off the corner of his robe, that was in En Gedi. David would go on to become the king that God had called him to be, and he would build a city. Now, what I want you to notice about this city is that it was built on Mount Moriah, kind of the lower part of that. So here's what I want to point out to you. This is more of a mountain than you realize. To the east here is the Kidron Valley, okay? Mount of Olives is on the opposite side of the Kidron Valley. You go down the Mount of Olives up to the other side, and now you're on Mount Moriah. So to the southern piece of that was The city of David. And what he did is he built these walls as a fortress on this mountain. He built a palace and a place where he lived. And then look at this right here. That's the tabernacle. And David wanted to build a temple. But God said, no, the consequence of your compromise is that you don't get to do that, but your son will. So Solomon is the third king, and he came and he built the temple. And boy, did he build the temple. He brought in cedars from Lebanon. He brought in things from all over the then known world. He brought in everything to make this temple of God a most special place. And it was. And it was built right there on Mount Moriah. And historically, that Holy of Holies there in the background was placed right on that outcropping where Isaiah, or excuse me, where Abraham bound his son Isaac for that sacrifice that never happened. That was David. That was Solomon. Where did he build the temple? Mount Moriah. What else took place at Mount Moriah? You got it. Good. So y'all are getting it. We've got four people. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua. We've been through two societies. Anarchy, royalty. Now here's the problem. Uh, You remember Jesus said that a Uh, A house divided will not stand. (laughs) It's true for a kingdom as well. Because what happened is, as God predicted, these worldly rulers became ruled by selfishness and sin. And as a result, uh, the kingdom that God had formed now was divided by men. You can see this by the northern kingdom of Israel. Here's the border. So this is the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's the southern kingdom known as Judah. So the Israelites, who were now a nation in the land of promise, being the people that God had called them to be, got what they wanted, and it ended up dividing them. And in that northern kingdom, instead of going into Jerusalem, that holy city established by David as the place where God would, his presence dwelled in that temple built by Solomon, the northern people said, no, we want to be separate and apart from you. So they set up two temples where they worshiped golden calves, one of them here in Bethel. The other one here in Dan. Remember Dan? Now when we were in Dan, I had a new appreciation for why the people in Dan didn't want to walk all the way down to Israel when they had everything there in Dan so lush and beautiful with that spring. That convenience is what led them to compromise. So they just stayed put and worshipped a golden calf instead of traveling to Jerusalem to worship God. It was in this same city, there's a place that they call a sacred precinct. And again, these are stones that are uncovered that exist there today, and they date back to the time of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first king of that northern kingdom of Israel. So very possibly, this in the city of Dan was that sacred precinct where that golden calf worship took place. We don't know for sure, but what's interesting is there's a place for an altar. These are stones that are original from that time of Jeroboam. And very possibly, this is the place of compromise, where that northern kingdom worshipped the golden calf. Jesus had said, a house divided will not stand, and neither will a kingdom. And that was true for the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. In 722 B.C., there was a great kingdom known as the Assyrian Empire. You can see them there in green. They were a massive empire coming in and then taking captive the northern kingdom of Israel. And what they did when they took these captives in is they kind of dispersed them. It's called the Diaspora. So the Jewish people who lived in that northern kingdom were now spread out over the Assyrian Empire. They did not capture the southern kingdom of Judah. But it wouldn't last long. Because in 586 B.C., another greater kingdom, known as the Babylonian Empire, came in and took over the southern kingdom of Judah. The way they operated was a little different. Instead of spreading them out, they kept them in exile, keeping them in uh, Babylon as an area. You remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? All those were exiles from Jerusalem, put into captivity there in Babylon. Well, they were there for 70 years of exile until another greater kingdom. And you can see it on this map. It's to the north of the kingdom of Babylon. Eventually, this Medes, Or the Persians eventually became stronger than the Babylons and they took over their territory as well. And the king of that empire's name was Cyrus. Cyrus had an interesting way of dealing with areas that he conquered. What he did, he says, I'm going to let you go back to the land that you came from and I'm going to let you worship the God you worship as long as you agree to ask that God to bless my empire. That was his decree. In fact, if you look in a British museum, you will find this actual artifact that has Cyrus's decree telling the people that they can go back to their land. And so under the uh, leadership of three particular people in the Jewish nation, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, those exiles from Babylon now move back into Jerusalem. The city had been destroyed by the Babylonians, but they restore it. They rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls under the leadership of Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple. And by all accounts, they are functioning as a people of God, almost kind of given another chance. I wouldn't say second chance, because by now they're about their hundredth chance, I think. But they are in the land that God had promised, being the people that God had called them to be. But then it goes silent. For the next 400 years, there's no prophets. There's no kings. The people of God exist as a nation there in that city of Jerusalem. They're conducting things as they normally would, but God doesn't speak. If you look at your Bible, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament is this period of silence. It's a period of 400 years. Now, although there's nothing happening from the biblical record there's certainly a lot of things happening on the world stage. Uh, After the Persian Empire, another great empire under the leadership of a man by the name of Alexander the Great comes on the scene. And we know that Alexander the Great was a tremendous ruler, conqueror of people. And what he did is he came in and, and took over the land, including that land in which Israel now occupied, and he instituted that Greek culture. Their artistry, the mythology, all the Greek gods and goddesses now became prevalent in all the land that they occupied, including the land of Israel. He introduced a common language, that Greek language. It was a significant cultural shift that took place under his leadership. But as always, there was yet another great kingdom waiting to come on the scene. You got it. The Roman Empire. And these guys were massive. They came in and added to the control. They expanded the territory and added to the improvements that was enlisted by this Greek culture. One of the things that they did is they did develop kind of this superhighway system that allowed for international travel. They introduced a, a common commerce for business within their territories. They built these huge, massive cities that were incredible to show the power and the greatness of the Roman empire. They had civil law, kind of a police force, military rule that made sure that everybody in their cities cities abided by Roman law. They could conduct their own religious practices as they intended as long as they kept the peace. One of the cities that we went to was a city called Betsheen. It's just north of Jericho, just west of uh, uh, the Jordan River. This is just a model of it, but what I want you to notice is this kind of main thoroughfare. This is a common architecture of a Roman city, okay? So when you look at this city, you know that there were several of these same kinds of cities that existed all throughout the, the uh, land of Israel. But here you have a big uh, coliseum, a big theater, and a city center with this main road and walls surrounding it. Okay, so we went to this city. Now, I climbed up, and I'm looking down now on top of this city. Everything that you see are actual remains from this Roman city that existed during the first century. And so you'll see that main road, and I'll show you a better picture, but remember the main road? There it is. Remember that theater? That's the theater. And if you look at it, those are the original stones that still exist from this Roman city. You'll also find in this city a bathhouse. This is fascinating. Now, the bathhouse is important. For us, we're like, huh, what's that? Well, a bathhouse... I was going to say it's like the barber shop, but in our day, it would be like the coffee shop. It's where people gathered to kind of catch up on what's happening. It's the gossip center. <laughs> it's where everybody learns about what, everything, what else is going on around the world, around the city, who's doing what. It happened in the bathhouse. So this was a major central place within the city. Those pylons uh, allowed a floor to be on top so that hot water would come underneath. And then they had these clay cylinders that the steam would travel up and fill it up like a steam room. In fact, I have another picture. You can see there, this this is actual, by the way. These are the clay, and you can see the floor on top of the pylons, but that's a bathhouse. And it was a central part of that Roman culture that existed in most every city that they built. It was the place where you found out what was happening. Also in these cities, you'll find incredible mosaics. These are original mosaics. From this Roman city. They're about little half-inch tiles. And, and you can see the, the letters and the, and the figures that existed. But all of this is original from this Roman city that existed in, in Betsheen. This is a picture that I'm taking. The first one I took from the top of that hill. Now I'm looking at it. The reason I'm telling you about this one, and I want you to uh, pay attention to this one, is because you see that little mountain? You know in the Bible when it talks about high places? That's what it's talking about. Because if you walk to the top of that hill like I did, you will find the remains of a pagan worship center. Because that's what they put on those high places. And so when it talks about the pagan worship on the high places, that's what it was. And that's what took place in these Roman cities. And so you have these great cities. Israel maintained its identity, was allowed to exist under Roman rule. And so... I want to show this one to you to just to set it up for next week. This is what is the, the city of Jerusalem would have looked like during Roman times. So during the first G- century when Jesus came on the scene, this would be, have been Jerusalem. And so let me highlight a couple of things for you. This is what is known as the city of David, the, original, the old city. This is the temple. So here's the southern steps. Right here's where the Wailing Wall, the western wall is. Here's the Holy of Holies. These are towers of Augustus where the Romans took their rule. And this is that city of Jerusalem that would have existed during the time of the Romans. uh, The time when Jesus came on the scene. The the thing I want you to realize here is that you've kind of been through the story of Israel's history. It's kind of fun to realize that what we just walked through is a survey of the Old Testament. And if you can remember those four people, who are they? Abraham, Joseph, Moses... Joshua, and then there were three civilizations, three societies. What are they? Anarchy, royalty, captivity, and then a period of silence. How long was it? For 100 years. You have just given a survey of the Old Testament. And in that survey, I hope you appreciate and understand the significance of how the nation of Israel was formed and what purpose they were given as a people. Because here's why this is important, and I don't want you to miss this. We have the privilege to look back on that history now. And there are some things that I think we should see that should make sense to us. We should see that there was a son, a son of Abraham, that was to be sacrificed, an only son. We should see a rescue from a a man named Joseph who was originally rejected. But he, the one rejected, became the one who would rescue. We see a people who were delivered from slavery. We see a shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. We see a promise of a future blessing that would come out of the nation of Israel. A promise of a king who would rule in righteousness. What are we talking about? Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And here's the key. You remember the covenant promise. And you remember how God alone in that unconditional unilateral covenant Walked between those pieces of the sacrifice. And you remember what that meant? When he said. Whatever has happened to these animals. May it happen to me if I break my promise. Which did not happen. But he also said may it happen to me. As has happened to the sacrifice. If you break that promise. And that did happen. That was Jesus. Separated. Set apart. Killed. On a cross, he fulfilled the covenant. He was the answer to the promise. So we need to understand that that what took place with Jesus was more than God sending a Messiah, which is true. We need to understand that as he promised to Abraham originally, he became the sacrifice. God himself. He took upon himself what was due to us. And fulfilled the promise that he made to Abraham. That message that was communicated to Abraham was the gospel back in Genesis. Here's how we know that. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Listen very carefully. It says, Even so Abraham believed in God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Listen, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. You are a part of the promise made to Abraham. Because by faith in that sacrifice made on your behalf, as consistent with the covenant promise that God made to Abraham, you have been grafted in, to the people of God. You are a part of His family. You are a chosen people of God. And with that, you have a purpose. And listen to these words and tell me if they're not familiar. This is in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2 verse 9. But you, sound familiar, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, who? Jesus, who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you see the echo? Those were the words spoken to the nation of Israel, now being spoken to you, the people of God, grafted in by faith in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Do you see how all this goes together? It's a beautiful tapestry of God's grace and love and His faithfulness to you and I. And if that's true, and I hope that you believe that it is, then we have a purpose. And Jesus told us that purpose when he said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, when Isaiah told the people to be a light to all the nations, Jesus is telling you and me to go and do the same. To be that light, to be that people, set apart, not fitting in, looking different than the world around them because they have a purpose, they have an identity. And that identity and that purpose is intended to be a light to the nations so that the salvation of God can extend to the ends of the world and that through that message of hope in Christ, that he might be the blessing to all the families of the earth just as he promised to Abraham. Isn't this awesome? This is the story of God, and it is a beautiful story. And we're just getting started. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your kindness. For knowing that we are a people who uh, can be stubborn, who can fail. And because of that, you made a promise that wasn't conditioned on us. It was conditioned only and completely on you. And you took upon yourself that which was due to us when you sent your son to die on the cross. But we believe that he has been raised from the dead and that one day he will return. And that this story, this story that began in creation and then started with Abraham and through his people, that descendant would come, that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, that that descendant, Jesus Christ, would return. and He would redeem his people and all those who come to him in faith. And that one day we live eternally in an eternal city where there is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no mourning, but we exist and live in the presence of a holy God who's loved us before the foundation of the earth, whose every intent was to draw us to himself. And I pray this morning that no matter where people are, no matter how far they may be, they won't see how far they have to go, but they will see how far you have come. To draw near to them. And they will see a great love. Because of a great grace. Because of a great God. And it's the name of our Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.